If you'll please take a copy of God's Word, and if you haven't brought your own, you'll find them in your in the pew in front of you, uh, and in the uh, ends of the aisles as well, into the pews. Be reading from the ESV. We're going to be looking at First uh, Peter chapter four this morning. First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven, as we continue our series on Peter. If you note, we're, we're getting close to the end. I have a, a few ideas about where we're heading next, but please be in prayer for me and our church as we think about what the next series will be, um, that we would uh, learn and be grown uh, by the book of, of God's choosing from His Word as we uh, learn and study together. This morning we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, but, but I want to back up to give us some context. We're going to start at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking... For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask for your blessing upon this preaching time. As we look at your word, give us eyes to see, uh, ears to hear, Lord, um, that we might learn and be changed by your spirit and by your word. We pray for anointing, both for the preacher and the hearer alike. And in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, we ask it. Amen. Christ's return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives. Christ's return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives. Think about it. We act differently when we know that someone is coming back, especially when we don't know when they are coming back. Don't you remember when your parents would begin to leave you at home when you reached that age which, when you could be trusted at home by yourself and they would leave you a list of things to do while they were gone? Now here's the thing. If you knew when they were coming back, when did you begin to work on that list? It was at the 11th hour, right? Right before they returned. Certainly when Christy is out of town seeing friends and, and family, um, Sometimes I'll leave on my lunch break and go and clean up the kitchen before she returns that afternoon. Because I know when she's coming back, cleaning up in a hurry. But when you don't know they are going to return, when they're coming back, you have to be diligent about getting things done. About about being busy 
about the tasks you have been given. Christ's return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives. When I was eight years old, my parents took me um, to a political rally. President H.W. Bush was running for for re-election in 1992. Um, I don't remember much about that time. But I I remember two things. One is that it was raining cats and dogs. Dogs and cats, y'all, they were coming down everywhere. And the second is that the president was really, really late. You had to get there early, right? Because you had to be screened by the Secret Service. And and you had to, um, you know, get jockey for position to get close. There were no seats. It was just standing room only on the asphalt in some parking lot somewhere. We'd been there for hours. And he was a couple hours late. And we waited forever and ever and ever. There we were, standing on the asphalt, and ponchos and my dad's green and white umbrella, the things that stand out to you. We were eagerly awaiting his arrival, the president's arrival. We'd never seen him before. We'd never seen a sitting president. We looked forward to it, but we didn't know when he would arrive. Now here's the thing. Since we didn't know when he was going to arrive, everyone was ready. All the folks who had been busy preparing for his arrival, all the workers, they were ready. We all had our cameras out ready so that when he walked on the stage, we could get that first glimpse and capture it. And no one wanted to go to the porta potties because you didn't want to miss it. His imminent arrival had a deep impact on our behavior. So too, Christ's return should deeply impact how we live our lives. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4. When we looked, what we saw that we don't know when we will die. The brevity of life changes how we live. We, don't, we aren't guaranteed tomorrow, and therefore we should live in a way no longer for our own human passions, seeking the, the, the desires of this world, the desires of those who don't know the Lord, the desires of our old lives. We should indeed seek to live for the Lord because we don't know when we will die. But there is another way in which our experience or the world itself will come to an end. We will either die or Christ will return. And we don't know when He will return. Therefore, therefore, our lives should be utterly, deeply impacted and changed and how we live will be changed and influenced and impacted by Christ's imminent return. That He is one day coming back though we don't know when it will be. We see this in chapters, I mean, uh, verse 7 here. Uh, which says the end of all things is at hand. The NIV puts it, the end of all things is near. When you think of the cartoons, you know, the, the world is coming to an end. The end is near. We know that's actually a biblical thought. Because we don't know when it's coming to an end. We know that Christ will return. And when He returns, it will be the last day. History will end. People will be raised out of their tombs. And all will stand before the judgment seat of God. And God's people who know Him will receive their resurrected bodies and live with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. What a day of rejoicing that'll be. Can you imagine going down Belleville and there's no hospital, there's no medical centers, there's not a police department, your aches and pains are no longer there, you no longer struggle with temptation and we are present with the Lord forever. Lord, may that day come very soon. Until then, God has given us a mission as the people of God, as a church, to go and make all disciples, to, to, to tell others about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, which brings eternal life. And because we don't know when He's coming back, 
We've got to get busy. We've got to get to work. We don't know when he's coming back. Therefore, his return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives. So, so Peter, in light of all this, writes to the believers in Asia Minor. This is the inspired word of God. Jesus himself is writing to the churches in Asia Minor, telling that because Christ is returning soon, their lives should be different, especially as they um, think about how they live in terms of the church. That's the context here, how we, how we act towards each other in the church, in our families, in the covenant community of faith. It is First Pres, specifically, but also broadly, the, the, the church, the Catholic church, the universal, not Roman Catholic, but the Catholic in the terms of universal church of Christ. How are our lives changed by His return? Are they? Do we live in anticipation of His return? So what does it look like? What does it look like to live in light of His return? The first we find in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. These words, self-controlled and sober-minded, are really synonyms for each other. And they reflect a life that is full of joy, full of fun, full of uh, good times, but a a life also that is spirit-filled, resistant to the sinful passions of the world, and a constant awareness that Christ is coming again. Being sober-minded and self-controlled doesn't mean you don't have fun or, you know, if you sign up to become a Christian that your life is suddenly over. My brother went off to college. He said, you know, I guess I thought, I had, no, when he graduated college and he, he went off to, to, uh, to work, he said, I guess I've had all the, had all the fun I'm going to have now, and now that, that real life was here. That's, that's sometimes how we view becoming a Christian. Now I have to actually obey God. Uh, that's, that's not how that works. Right? There's, there's, there's much joy in the Christian life. There, there's life in the Christian life, whereas before we were dead. The opposite of being sober-minded and self-controlled really is the word drunkenness. A life that is under the control of sin, doesn't care about anything beyond self, and doesn't have much to do with the Lord. So why should the return of Christ cause us to be self-controlled and sober-minded? Think about it this way. When you were in high school and your math teacher left you... um, you know, I've really picked on the math teachers. Let's let it be somebody else. Uh, the English teacher. The English teacher leaves you on the board four questions that you're supposed to answer while she goes down for a meeting. You don't know when she's coming back, but, but you know the first thing that happens when she walks out of that door, right? Everybody goes crazy. The teacher's no longer there. Sure, there's some things to do on the board, but no one's really going to do that. But when she comes back, She's going to want to know the answers. We, they've been given a task. The student's been given a task, and it actually means that there needs to be some self-control and sobriety, being sober-minded in order to get the task done. There's a seriousness to life that requires being sober-minded and self-controlled. Self-control meaning turning aside from the passion of our flesh, saying no to sin. Sober-minded, having that mindedness that Christ is coming again. We, you might otherwise say we need to grow up, um, take responsibility for our actions, and get about the tasks that God has given us. You know, in an age in which adolescence and uh, the teenage years and immaturity lasts into the 20s, 30s, and perhaps beyond, this is a tough one for our culture that we need to grow up and, and be so reminded and self-controlled and get to the tasks that God has given us. But there's a real connection of prayer here. 
We're told to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers. If we go back to the illustration of President Bush and the political rally, don't you know that the uh, organizers were talking with Air Force One? There was constant chatter between those on the ground, the organizers, and and the president when he was going to arrive. Um, If the staff wanted to have their job at the end of the day, they they had to have a measure of self-control and sober-mindedness as they got their job done, and yet constantly talking to their boss in the air to find out when he would arrive and what he wanted them to do. We don't know when Christ is going to arrive. Not on Air Force One, but as Sphinx tells me, on a cumulus cloud. And just like those staffers on the ground were talking to their bosses in the sky, so too we need to be fervently talking to our Lord and Master as He gets closer and closer to know and to communicate what He wants us to do and to seek His help. But we have to have a sober-mindedness, if you will, a sobriety and a self-control. Certainly we see here Christ's example of sober-minded, being self-controlled. As we think about His earthly ministry, He never once wavered from His commitment to His Father's mission. We never see His self-control dim. Indeed, His self-control and our self-control really are defined by His steadfast and perfect uh, actions in the face of temptation. As he came closer and closer to the cross, the day as it came closer and closer, he was determined evermore to achieve our salvation, something that wouldn't happen if he went about it casually. We even see the sober-mindedness in his high priestly prayer in John 17 as he prayed for the church, for us. And now he intercedes and prays for us in heaven before the very same throne of God that we can go to. So Christ's return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives, especially on our frame of mind and our prayer lives. As we see the day coming more and more, closer and closer, we should be fervent in prayer for the gospel to go forth, for the kingdom of God to come to earth as it is in heaven, eagerly as we await his return. Do we live in this constant awareness that today might be the day of Christ's return? The second thing that the the return of Christ should provoke us to is that we should love one another earnestly. The context here is the church. We are called to love our neighbor. And you're either in the category of neighbor or enemy. And Jesus has the same words for both, love. So there's no one that we are called not to love. Uh... To love one another earnestly as we see the day approaching. Who has time to be petty with each other, holding back forgiveness, when something so life-altering, history-ending, and glorious as the return of Christ could happen today? Would it really be a good use of our resources to be bickering with one another in the church and in our families when Christ could come back at any time? Is that how we want Christ to find us? Infighting. No. And so we are called to love one another earnestly. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Think about the recipients of this letter. They're in Asia Minor. Persecution is starting to fire up. It hadn't reached the point where the government is starting to kill Christians yet. That will happen later in the 80s and 90s. But in this point, it is social, being socially ostracized. People are being driven out of their jobs because they won't uh, uh, sacrifice to the local uh, idols of the trade guilds. They aren't seen as good citizens. People who once were their friends won't have anything to do with them. Families turning against family. And so what happens when you take a bunch of sinners? even though they love Jesus, a bunch of sinners, and throw a bunch of stress in. Things can sometimes get hairy. Right? I don't know about you, but when I have stress in my life, I don't always handle it the best way. And something over here that's busy or hard affects all my... I let it, I let it affect my whole life, and I'll be short. And I, I won't give people the time of day. And I won't love folks like I should. And so in the context of a church that is full of people who are having hard times with busy schedules, Peter says, look, above all, keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Don't you know that this is true? When you love someone fiercely, you're much more eager and apt to let small and sometimes even major offenses go. You know, think about it. Your, you know, within your marriage, when your own, you know, when your marriage is healthy, and there are slights against each other, you know what? It's just okay, and you just keep on moving. But when there's conflict, when when there's tension between you and your spouse, suddenly those little things begin to really irk you, or your family, your kids, or your friends. You know, it really is true that what we think of other people really has more to do with us than it does with them. What we think about someone else really has a lot more to do with our own hearts than it does with them. And when we love people, love covers a multitude of sins. We move past the fact that we're all fallen and we all all need forgiveness. We love each other, move forward on the mission that God has given us because the time is short and the day is near of Christ's return. Certainly we see Christ's example here, right? And this one just jumps off the page. Whom did did Jesus love earnestly? Perhaps we should define earnestly by being willing to die on the cross for them. Whom did He love? Was it the righteous? No, for no one's righteous. Was it those who have their lives together? No, because none of us have our lives together. None of us, by the way. We may clean our houses so they're spick and span and ought to be on Southern Living uh, Magazine or or Home and Garden or whatever those things are now. And and yet we know that our lives really behind all that really are a mess. That's when we're walking with Jesus. He didn't die for people who have it together. He had it for sinners, wretches like you and me. He died for people who have serious histories of sin, bad sin, real sin, heinous sin, serious sin. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And now He covers our sin. How can our sins be covered? They can only be covered by the blood of Jesus. Uh, Psalm 32.1 Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Our sins, if we are in Christ Jesus, if we have received the gift of salvation, then our sins are covered. Because He has earnestly loved us. Therefore, as those who have received God's love and forgiveness, how in the world could we refuse to forgive those in our midst who have sinned against us? For what we do against each other pale in comparison to 
what we've done to God. Well, Christ's return should have a deep impact on how we live our lives. It has a deep impact on how we deal with each other. We also see this. We should show hospitality in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In a day and age in which uh, inns and motels were exceedingly expensive, um, they were exceedingly dangerous, it was really important that people would open their homes up for travelers, for there really weren't any other options to stay. Uh, this could be taxing on the host, especially when people stayed longer than they're welcome. Has that ever happened in your home? You know, or when someone begins to eat you out of house and home? Um, you can come to my house and stay with us as long as you're neat. Never talk to me and don't eat my food. Okay, that's, that's usually how we think, right? At least beyond the first day, we start to grumble. And like fish, everybody starts to smell after about day three. And so here, Peter tells him, look, show hospitality one to the other. And here's the kicker. Do it with a good attitude. Do it without grumbling. Um, But here's the thing. As one commentator pointed out, the advance of the gospel depended upon believers exercising hospitality. When you think about Paul and all the places he traveled, when you think about Luke and Priscilla and Aquila and Silas and Timothy, you know, all these these great names we know from the scriptures and all the other ones that we don't know because there are myriad, myriad more that we don't have any clue who they were. How, How did they get around? Where did they stay? They stayed in people's homes. And sometimes they even preached out of their homes. It was crucial for the advance of the gospel. So show hospitality one to another without grumbling. But you know, we may not... Actually, Bruton's much like this, isn't it? We don't have a decent hotel. And when people come in, they must stay at our homes. When missionaries come in, as the news of of our supportive missionaries come in and and, and tell us about all that God is, 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 uh, is doing, where do they stay? They stay in our homes. If they don't, they don't stay in Bruton. Uh, what about with new visitors at church when we invite them into our homes? The gospel goes forth. The, the, the kingdom is advanced. Come and share a meal with us. Show hospitality. Breaking bread together. Or to the lonely widow whose only co- physical contact may be the preacher's hand at the back door all week long. We show hospitality. We invite into our homes. And without grumbling, we do it joyfully. Why? Because this is the example we have in Christ. The word for generosity is xenophilos. And you know these words, right? Xenos means other, philos means love. The the loving of strangers. True hospitality doesn't deal with our own family. It deals with those who are not like us. And this is what the Creator has done. The Creator took on flesh of His creation to die for those like you and me who wanted nothing to do with Him. He has loved the stranger. And therefore, we are called to love those who are not like us. Finally, the, the fourth thing, really, we're, we're, that we see that Christ's return should have a deep impact on our lives, this area, is using our gifts. We see this in verses 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by strength, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
God has given us, each and every one of us, at least one spiritual gift. And he has called us to be good stewards of it or them. A steward is someone who takes care of something that belongs to another. I'm immediately thought, I think of um, you know, Brad Miller out at the Auburn Experimental Farm. He is over the experimental farm and, and professors tell him what to plant. And he is responsible to plant and to study and record what the, the, the folks who really own the test tell him to do. So too, we have been given gifts and God has said, hey, I want you to plant this area with your gifts. They belong, your gifts belong to me, but now go and do and use them for my glory. And so we have been given gifts and we are called to use them for his glory. Now, he doesn't give everybody the same gift. Imagine if you went to Walmart and one day they saw, the only thing they sold was laundry detergent. Y'all, they had, you know, what, like 30,000 square feet of laundry detergent. And then the next day you go and all they have is Kraft mac and cheese. Now they have 30,000 square feet or whatever it is of of Kraft mac and cheese, powdered cheese goodness. That's all they have. Now we wouldn't really be well served by that, would we? We'd be able to get that powdery stuff out of our clothes, but that's about it. God's church is not like that. We have been given varied gifts. We've been given different gifts. In fact, one commentator says this, in brief, the church is a veritable, a veritable storehouse of gifts and talents, never locked and always open for service. So he puts the categories in two, excuse me, the, the, the gifts into two sections. He, he categorizes them in, in speaking and serving gifts. The speaking gifts we would in, see would include from other texts, would include apostleship, prophecy, teaching, tongues, and exhortation. Some of these have been fulfilled uh, and now are in the first century and now are part of the, the role of preaching and teaching and elders. Well, others would include, this, the serving side would include gifts such as giving, administration, leading, mercy, helps, healing, miracles, these sorts of things. But for all of these, we are called to use them for His glory. For those with speaking gifts, they are called those who teach, those who preach, those who teach and preach, whether it be from the pulpit or the Sunday school classroom, in the living room, or in the marketplace, we are called not to preach our own ideas, but the Word of God. Not our opinions or the speculations of man, but that which God has revealed in Scripture. And those who have been given serving gifts are not to rely on their own strength and might, but, but, but to rely on, their, on the strength and might that God so richly provides Not doing it out of self-service, self-reliance, or self-benefit, but doing it for God's glory and Christ's strength. Indeed, if we we think back to the Bush rally illustration, you know, the the people on the ground had their own unique jobs. You had folks, some folks who were guards with guns, who were in charge of guarding the president and guarding the crowds. You had others who were in charge of communications and, and others who were in charge of the slideshows and the, and the music and all those things. Now, what if any one of them had stopped working and doing their job? The political rally would have been a shambles, would have been running at a deficit. And so, too, we have been given unique talents and unique gifts for the purpose of building up God's kingdom and building up His church right here at First Press. What, what gifts have you been given? And are you using them for God's glory? Um, we're going to be exploring this, by the way, this, this uh, 
fall here at First Pres on Wednesday nights. We're going to be doing several little mini-series, and one of those is going to be using our gifts here at the church. We're going to be doing a, a spiritual gift inventory, discovering what our gifts are, and thinking through how we can use them in the local church and our church to work together for God's glory in the building of His congregation. Certainly we see Christ's example. Christ came um, not to be served. He came speaking the oracles of God. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty five. So how are our lives deeply impacted by the return of Christ? Are they deeply impacted? We don't know when His return will be. But He has called us to live our lives in such a way that we are to be busy about His work, serving others, and accomplishing the Great Commission. When Christ comes again, will your sins be covered? For those who know Christ and have accepted Him and His grace and forgiveness of sins, we will spend eternity with the Lord in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Christ came to cover, to forgive, and to pay for the sins of His people. If you don't know Him, if your sins aren't covered, then turn to Him today. And all your sins will be covered by the blood of Jesus. And we will spend eternity together in heaven worshiping Him. For to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank You that You have given us the gifts we need. That You have called us to show hospitality. That You have called us to love one another. Lord, um, help us to be diligent in the use of these things as we eagerly await the return of our Savior. Until then, Lord, give us grace. Give us help. In the name of Jesus, amen. We'll conclude our service. The number is wrong in your bulletin. It is number 241. 241. It's perhaps a new text for you, but you'll recognize the tune very quickly. Let's stand and sing 241. Lo, He comes with clouds descending.